Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, my founder friends, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by Ashutosh Garg. Ashu founded Eightfold.ai to leverage artificial intelligence to help companies like Hulu, Twilio, Postmates, and Capital One retain top performers, upskill and reskill their workforce, recruit top talent efficiently, and reach diversity goals. He's also the co-author of the book, What's Next for You? The Eightfold Path to Transforming the Way We Hire and Manage Talent. Today, we are joined by Ashu himself. So thank you for being here, my new friend. How are you today? Thank you for hosting me. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to have you here. So uh, first off, how did you even get into this? How did this whole thing get started? Well, I'm a serial entrepreneur, machine learning person by training. This is my second venture. And key thing was, let's do something that is good for society. If we can help everyone get a better job, better career, better employment, we will change the world. So we started... In 2016, with the mission of enable yeah. the right career for everyone, that school solve for employment. What what uh, led to you seeing that as the problem that you wanted to solve? Well, 99% of the people I meet are not satisfied with their own job, their own career. No one is helping them. Like Drew, as you were telling about your story, right? That when pandemic hit, you switched to also doing podcasting. But today. It is all driven by your own initiative. Today, you get the job based on who you know. Can we completely change the equation so that Mm. you get the job, you get the career based on what you are capable of doing, not just what you know I've done in the past or who you know. Yeah, I love that. So where did you start as trying to create a solution for that problem? We looked around and what we found is that actually employment is a marriage between an individual and the enterprise. So we really need to understand where jobs are, what these companies are doing. And what was interesting is that while talking to people, they were frustrated about their own employment, about their own career. Enterprises were equally, if not more frustrated to get the right talent. Hmm. Were struggling to figure out where's the talent, who's the right talent for them. And especially in an ever-changing world where things are constantly evolving. So we started by working with some of the largest enterprises across the globe to understand what they have done over the years, who they have hired, who has performed well over there, learn from their data to better model what is relevant for which enterprise, and also bring the data from across the globe to better understand how people have navigated their career and use that to enable enterprises to better understand the fit of each person for the roles in their own organization. Yeah. So you, you you conducted some research with these large organizations. Basically, it sounds like to find out what are the characteristics that were uh, in common with someone that was successful at that company and what were the characteristics of those that really struggled. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. Mainly on the positive side, what makes someone successful in an organization? Look at the, for each function, each department, each role, what are people they have hired in the past who are performing well over there, who are growing in their career who are the right fit for the organization, what are their characteristics, right? What skills those people have? And can we use that learning to 
understand each person as they're coming through the door. Yeah. There are other employees in other departments who may want to move into that function, that department. How do you basically connect the right people to the right job? Yeah. Did anything surprise you about the findings of that research? I think it's the best one and the, at some level enhanced the most obvious one. That when you ask people what are they looking for is so different from what actually is relevant for them. Hmm. And the reason I say on enhanced it's the most obvious one is when you ask people who they are, the answer is very often not exactly who they are, but who they want to be, aspire to be, right? Like organizations will say that, oh, I'm looking for someone with these 20 different skills, or I'm looking for someone with 20 years of experience. But guess what? The last person you hired didn't have 10 out of those 20 skills, or the person who's top performer in that role yeah. has been with the company only for five years, so they don't have 20 years of experience. So are you really calibrating things correctly? And even that simple thing was an aha moment for enterprises. Yeah. Uh, like I still remember in the early days, one of this ex example where I showed up at a company demoing our product and this leader from that organization asked me to make a query around a specific role. The system brought up the top 10 candidates for that role. And his first take was, oh, that first candidate makes no sense. He doesn't have the skills that I'm looking for. You're matching his score. Yeah. The person sitting next to him was like, but hold on a minute. The first person is the one we hired last week for the same role, or a few months back for the same role, and is a top performer. So sometimes people have their, when they project themselves, like human understanding of data, data is very limited. Characteristics is very limited. And sometimes machines are much better, a lot more capable of doing this at a scale. Hmm. And to me, that was both an aha moment, also a moment which told me that there's something real over here, something extremely. Yeah. Popular. Yeah. How do you, how do you, from a data standpoint, how do you get to see and learn what is actual? right? Like what the actual thing is, the actual traits, the actual things versus what you're talking about, the subjective, um, you know, point of view or, or who I want to be, uh, answering the question subjectively, right? Like how do you, how do you actually get to the bottom of it? I think by giving people the transparency, guiding them through the process, uh, a very common thing people ask me is, but what about culture fit? And to me, that's a perfect example of where diversity can become a huge challenge, right? I'm looking for someone who's a great culture fit. I have no idea what that means, right? But what is relevant for this job? Let's talk about that, right? Oh, I'm looking for someone who's very energetic. Well, is that your perception of energetic or can you quantify it? How do you think about it in the context of the work, right? Someone who is very outgoing. Someone who is very gregarious. Someone who is great orator. Someone who thrives in a startup environment. Like, as, as soon as you start putting those kind of, I mean, subjective things, right? Right. 
I think you have a very slippery slope. I'm looking for someone who has scaled the company. Someone who has gone through multiple pivots. Someone, makes sense, I can quantify that, right? Someone who has seen three pivots. Someone who has scaled the company from 1 million to 10 million, 100 million, right? Very understandable, right? Someone who has worked in a company where things were still getting set up. Makes sense. Someone who will be a great marketer, who will be great with field events. Makes sense. Like, versus someone who's outgoing. I don't know what that means, to be honest, right? Right. I mean, and your definition of that might be very different from my definition, from the next person's definition, right? So I think that is what we are trying to change. That let's focus on the skills that are relevant for the job. Let's focus on characteristics that are relevant for the job versus what you might perceive or might think, might imagine. Totally makes sense. I want to get to your your founder's journey for a little bit. You mentioned that this is your second um, second business that you've you've started and scaled. What, if anything, is different about this second time around versus the first time? The big difference in the early days was that second time you have some credibility coming in. People trust you more. When you say something, people are like, okay, let me listen to what he's saying. Fundraising was a bit easier for the first round, for example. Yeah. In my case, I didn't start this company in the same vertical, same space as the first company. So I didn't get any credit for that kind of credibility over there that he's a person from the space who knows. So for me, it was all about like, what is the critical problem in the society? Let's go solve that. I will learn in that journey, right? But as a second time founder, you do get a lot of credibility, which helps make it a bit easier. Sure. What um, were there any mistakes that you made in the in the first uh, business as a founder that you thought, hey, I'm going to make sure I avoid this the next time I build something? A uh, few. As an example, is how much are you focused on short term growth versus long term growth? Hmm. How much are you trying to optimize for success versus failure? And I can dive into that a lot more. Yeah. How are you thinking of platform dependencies? How are you thinking of market evolution? I think are some of the things that I learned a lot as part of the first journey that I tried to solve for in my second one. Yeah. Well, let's, let's dive deeper into to as many of those as we have time for. They all sound interesting. So the first one, short-term growth versus long-term growth. What do you mean? by? I mean, I, I know what that means, but where was the recalibration in terms of your focus there? As a very simple example, right? When we started the company in the Charlie space, one of the top of the mind problem for every leader is, I'm trying to hire people quickly. I'm not able to find the talent. Can you help me with that? Makes sense. But that typically is a moment in time problem. Hmm. As the market shifts, that problem goes away. While that problem persists for a few small percentage of the roles in the company, that is not the primary problem in the company. So as another example is if you have an agency model where I can send you a candidate, you hire, you pay me 20K, right? You get a lot of money upfront. 
seems like very lucrative but in the long term that is not a sustainable business hmm. having a pricing model that helps you extract a lot of value on day one may not be the right pricing model in the long term so thinking through how your customer is going to perceive it right can have massive impact in the long term on your business so some of the trade offs you are making is is this a viable business in the long term is this a problem that is going to persist for the long term if this enterprise were to change if the market were to change will this problem persist or not persist because what we do know is that things will change evolve over time right yeah whatever problem you are solving is it going to be an important problem in the long term or not so what does that look like for you in the context of eightfold a very simple a very simple example would be that pretty much every competition we have in the market right it started as a, either a talent acquisition company or a talent management company and even in the early days when we were starting the company right number of people told me that oh just focus on one why are you spreading yourself too thin uh between 2017 to 2019 hiring was going on in the market first half of 2020 hiring came to stand still as the market recovered both hiring and talent management became extremely important and now we are back to slow hiring aggressive talent management right a company that just focused on one or the other struggled during this journey yeah a company that focused on both and build a platform that cuts across these silos of organizations and solves for the entire talent life cycle like it would was able to weather this so much better hmm that's that's interesting so like you said the conventional advice is really niche down don't spread your focus only solve one problem but what you're finding is a little bit of diversi- diversification actually allowed you to weather some serious challenges to the, the 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 economy and the and the you know the global outbreak and all that stuff was presenting you yep absolutely wow what i'd love to hear more about too is is this idea of platform dependency what does that mean and how does that apply if you're building a company that depends on just one other enterprise which has a large market share so for example if you're building a company which is wholly dependent on salesforce success if you're building a company that is wholly dependent on aws success for example right or google success then the issue with that is the day this other company changes their course their priorities their focus you can be wiped out hmm. yeah in my previous company there was a huge dependence on google so that hurt us this time around for example right companies in back in the days there were many companies like trial phase of the world that were built on the facebook platform yeah or zynga the day facebook changed their policies they got decimated or facebook was too dependent on apple platform on the payment side right when apple changed their terms they got decimated mm. what you have to do is no one should be able to hold you hostage. Yeah, I was just it's funny that you mentioned the Facebook thing cuz I was just thinking about you know how many people have found a way to really win 
on a certain platform, social media, let's say. They really understood the Facebook ads or they really understood Google paid ads or whatever. And like you said, the moment those policies change, the moment they change the algorithm or whatever, you are now, you know, screwed, right? Because you don't know how to succeed outside that one avenue in the particular way it was set up. Exactly. Uh, I think one other thing that I'd say is don't fall in love with your own product. Hmm. Like typically, what you will find is that entrepreneurs love their offering too much. This is my baby. Kind of a thing, right? The common phrase is this is like people are like, so this is like your third baby, right? And I'm like, no, at some level, a startup is a business which is focused on solving a problem for the market. That is what it is. Mm. If you tie your identity too much to a specific product, a specific offering, then at some point, you will be outdated. You will become less relevant. Yeah. So don't tie yourself to what you are doing today. Tie yourself to the customer's problem. In fact, not even the customer's problem, but the market, right? Because even customer's problems may change over time. And they have as minimal an ego as possible around that stuff. And I think that is extremely critical, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. The the falling in love, it feels like it's got to be a delicate balance, right? Where you want to have emotional investment and belief in what you're doing, but not be so tied to it that you are unable to see where it needs to change or evolve or where it's failing, right? Exactly. Hmm. Another area that I found interesting is we don't challenge the conventional wisdom a lot. We just take things the way they are, right? And sometimes conventional wisdom is just conventional. It's not relevant to your business. Every business is different. Hmm. And once you accept it that every business is different, every market is different, and you have to adopt and adjust. So here's an example, right? Aligning your growth, your financials, your pricing to the ROI, right? Makes a lot of sense. Let's align everything to ROI. Let's make sure your pricing reflects ROI, right? A customer is getting, which intuitively makes sense. And it's a good thing to do. But quite a few times when your pricing is too tight to ROI, you create an adversarial relationship with your buyer. We are now buyer is incentivized to prove that your ROI is lower than what it is. Because mm. that is how they save money. So how do you combat that? So as a company, as a startup, your goal is to make your buyers heroes. So that's what I also meant by like, don't be too short-sighted about what you are doing. Yes, it should be aligned. It's need to be aligned. But at the same time, if it is tied too closely to it, it may not be the right thing. Yeah. Now, there are, com 
where this is not necessarily true is companies like Google have done a phenomenal job of tying their revenue to ROI. They go charge the customers on a per click basis, right? The reason they can afford to do that is because they're a monopoly on that access, right? They're the largest traffic driver in the world. Right. So they are able to do that. On the other hand, if they were to start doing to make it too close to outcome for the customer, saying that let me tie my pricing to the outcome that a customer is getting, which is the conversion, quite a few times customers will start arguing that is this outcome because of you or not because of you, right? Yeah. So constantly think about is your pricing aligned with the market? Is your pricing aligned with the growth opportunities that may exist? So how does Eightfold think about its pricing? How do you determine how you set your price? So as a very simple example, right? We charge a platform fee based on the size of the enterprise. We don't necessarily tie it to the number of open requisitions in the company. We don't tie it to the number of users who will be using the platform. If you start tying it to the latter two, the issue is that the day company is ramping up or down, it becomes a big challenge, right? Yeah, yeah. A retailer may be hiring 100,000 people because they have high attrition. A financial institution may be hiring only 5,000 people, but the value of those people is much larger, right? So it becomes a complex, painful exercise in that case. If you start tying into the number of users, then company will op- try to optimize for who's going to use your product, who's not going to use your product. Yep, they're, incentiv- they're incentivized to have fewer people use the product, right? Which is not what you want. You want more and more people to be using your product, right? So think about yeah. some of these things as well. You all have, have been successful. It sounds like from the very get-go, even getting certain companies to participate even in the research of what became Eightfold, how did you get them to trust you enough to invite you into that space? There was a very phenomenal learning that I got from the early days of my first company. So in my first case of my first company, we signed a customer, uh, Lightning, uh, a company that sells lighting fixtures from Minneapolis. And somewhere during the demo, they asked us, is this product going to work? Are you sure the product works? Our first reaction was to say, oh, of course it will work, right? We are confident it works. But then we realized that maybe we should be very transparent, truthful, honest over here. We said, well, you are going to be our first customer. We don't know. But we'll work hard to make it happen for you. Yeah. The customer bought the offering. Few years later, we were asking the same customer, like, you didn't even know whether our product will work or not. Why did you buy it, right? It was like, where in, else in the world I will find five people from Silicon Valley, some of the best possible experience from Google, Facebook of the world, working day in, day out to give me the best value for just $10,000 a month. Why not? <laughs> if I have to bet 10K, I will bet on these people than anyone else out there, right? Now, the learning in that is your customers are smart. 
And I think there's a very powerful thing that many times we assume that our, is our customer, our buyer is smart or not. They know about their business and they are smart about their business. They may not be able to articulate it, but the reason they exist in the business is because they know something that we don't know. Yeah. So don't assume, I mean, give them the full faith, right? Be transparent and honest with them. And if you're transparent and honest, they will go work with you. Every once in a while, you may lose someone, which is fine. But in the grand scheme of things, you will win a lot more than you will lose. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, unfortunately the conventional wisdom, like you mentioned earlier in this case is often fake it till you make it right. That, Hey, you've got to, you got to act like you, you, you know, they're your 100th customer, even though they're, you're the first and that, that could cause a lot more problems. Not, not to mention the integrity issue, but, uh, could actually set up a, I would imagine even a block to really serving that that customer well simply because you can't be honest about what the issues are and and we're, we're going to work hard to fix it and uh it sounds like your approach really sets up a partnership like a true partnership with the client yes yes uh, and i think that is what you want right i mean most things may have a rocky start right and if you're not being trust, uh, truthful honest right it won't go a long way at some yeah. point, truth will come out, right? I mean, see, the other thing is that with the startups, you never know where they will end up, right? The likelihood of success of any startup is very, very low to begin with. So let's at least do what is right. Hmm. That is completely in your control, right? Yeah. Yeah, I've heard somebody say once, if you're not sure what to do, pick the one that you can sleep best at night, right? Exactly. exactly. Like, I don't know. This thing may work. It may not work, but I can I can protect my own integrity and, and know that I can sleep well. And I was like, I don't know whether it will work or not, but you know what? I won't rest until I make it work for you, right? Yeah. Don't slow down, right? I like that. Well, you mentioned, you know, the amount of startups that do not make it. They don't they don't even escape the, the the first two years, right? To ever see profitability, to ever find a real fit in the market. What do you think are some of the reasons that you all were able to defy the statistics and, and actually succeed as a startup? Well, first, I talk about the stories that are successful. I'm not sharing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do have those skulls in between, right, which have not gone anywhere. But on a more serious note, right? Be always listening to your customers. Be always trying to learn, adopt, adjust. And what I say about myself is I'm a highly, highly optimistic person. Hmm. Like, For me, every situation is a glass half full. What can I do? Not what why it won't work, but what can make it work? That is a question I'm constantly asking about everything, right? And I think that has helped me a lot. 
because you're always looking for a solution versus digging into a problem. That's beautiful. Listening to the customer, looking for the solution. I mean, a lot of more than just the tactical I hear in that. I also hear the ingredients that will produce resilience, right? In you that you don't give up at the first roadblock where you're surprised that, Hey, this isn't what they wanted or needed, or I thought this would work and it didn't. Uh, you've got more of a resilient mindset toward it. And I think what happens over time, right? Uh, I've been doing now startups for more, more than 15 years. Hmm. So it's, it's another long, long time. And over the years, you learn, right, that everything at some level is transitory. So good things will happen, come your way, bad things will come your way, right? Stay focused, keep learning, keep trying to problem solve, right? Yeah. Uh, other thing that I at least personally do a lot is While I have a strong opinions, which enables me to be very, very decisive, I'm also extremely curious. For the smallest thing, I will call 10 people and ask their opinion. Huh. I will ask my chief of staff, I will ask my board, I will ask the customer, I will ask a personal friend, I will ask my wife, I will ask everyone. Because you never know what someone will tell you at what moment that will turn out to be valuable, right? Yeah. Ultimately, a decision is yours. But getting the data from everyone is valuable, right? And the day I start thinking that I know everything, I don't need to ask. This person is too junior to me. What are they going to tell me? Like, the day you start blocking yourself, yeah. don't go anywhere. Yeah, the way, the way that I've always, not always, the way I've come to think about it is the moment you believe you're a master in your mind at anything, you've immediately started to become irrelevant because you've, you've basically said, I have nothing left to learn. I have nothing left to grow. And yet the world is still changing and growing and you are not, right? And it reminds me kind of of some of the Eastern philosophy about like beginner's mind, right? Like in martial arts, this idea of beginner's mind. I think uh, one thing you didn't ask, but uh, maybe I will share that anyway, is be accountable hmm. and take accountability. Especially as a founder CEO. But each one of us are CEO of our own role, our own life, right? At some point, it was almost an aha moment where I realized that Actually, the buck stops with me. Hmm. Now, you may say that's a very obvious thing, right? But never be able to say that I am not able to do this, I can't do this, I'm not doing this because of someone else. No. Ultimately, every decision is mine. I have to take accountability and ownership of that. And that accountability mindset is extremely important. Hmm. Extremely important, right? And it forces us to rethink every conversation, every action, every activity. 
So it's a simple thing, right? You may say that, okay, why did Ashu not have the proper lighting, which as I'm reflecting, it's not necessarily good, right? For me, the accountability is what I could have done. For you, it is what you could have done to make sure it is there, right? And yes. if all of us start owning that accountability by ourselves, right? We become a lot more successful. Because we have nowhere to yeah. hide, we have nowhere to run to, we have no one to pass the blame to. Buck stops with me. Yeah, it can be a very empowering way of looking at the world, even though it feels like the opposite at the beginning, right? It feels like, oh, I'm taking the blame. It's not fully my fault. But in reality, you're empowering yourself because you're saying, I have ability to change, to change the situation, to to do something so that that outcome is different next time. And it's, it, to I, me, it's empowering, right? There are times I'm going for my company meeting, right? And I will have five people give me advice that actually you should say this or you should not say this, right? But ultimately, when I'm standing, people are hearing me. They're not hearing anyone else. Yeah. So I believe in everything that I'm saying or I should not say. I can't go in and say that, oh, I said this because this other person in my team asked me to say this. Yeah. And you can get around, you can hide behind someone else for a short period, but some at some point in your life, it's going to catch up. Yeah. That's really good. That's, that's, that's solid wisdom. So far, um, you've given us really foundational things that I believe would really build long-term success. You've talked about integrity. You've talked about transparency. You've talked about curiosity, continued development, diversification. Um, these are awesome. These are like solid, solid principles for, for myself and, and many founders included to, to really take to heart and build upon. Awesome. Yeah. Last question for you, just because, you know, you guys have AI in the name and we're in the middle of what seems to be an AI revolution. Uh, are you excited about what's happening in the world of AI right now and how that might improve or expand your service and product? I'm super excited. Uh, uh, so first, the way I look at it, it's here. And there's no running away from it. Like it or not, it's here. It's here. And not only we are here, but it's at the inflection point of an exponential curve. The rate of the change that we will see over the next 10 years is far, far greater than what we have seen over the last 10 years. Wow. So, to be honest, at some level, it's also very scary. I have no idea what will happen over the next 10 years. Because we've already been in the crazy acceleration curve the last 10 years. And everything that we knew will be out of the window, right? <laughs> but what I do know is the world needs help. Climate change is a big problem in our society. Yeah. A large portion of the world is still unemployed. They can't feed their families. Cancer is still killing millions of people every year. Half of US may be diabetic in the next 10 years. Yeah. There are massive, massive problems in our society today. These problems are not going away. And we need help. And maybe AI can help us focus on these problems. Won't that be amazing? 
Absolutely. Well, I'm actually excited, energized. At the same time, at Airful, we talk a lot about responsible AI. Uh, and I think with AI, we have great power, but also comes with great responsibility. We have to do the right things. What do you think needs to happen in order for there to be for for there to be responsible AI? I mean, is there a governance? You know, is there a a like I don't know. How do you right now? It just feels like the wild west. It feels like anyone and everyone can use it however they want, which is great. Yet we also know, like you said, with great power comes great responsibility. How do you think about that? I mean, governance is a fine, but it's all a catch. It's a typically a catch-all phrase. So that's why I'm a little bit not going over there. Yeah. I think a few things that we should really think a lot about is transparency. Human in the loop. Being a way to put checks and balances over there. Am I doing it to help myself? versus am I doing it for someone else? So a very simple example is that I, I mean, ChatGPT, right? Everyone is talking about it. Let's say I use ChatGPT to write an email to you. And one scenario is I go to my Gmail and it says that ChatGPT, can you generate an email that I can send it to? It generates an email, I see is it and I send it to you. I know exactly where the content came from in some sense, right? Where this email came from. I looked at it. I'm like, yeah, it kind of makes sense. I'm okay with that thing to you, right? Let's say you got, you get offended by that, right? I can take the responsibility of it because accountability, because I knew I looked at it, right? On the other hand, I just hit a button, ChatGPT just sent an email to Drew. I have no idea what it did. I'm completely out of that loop, right? Right, right. I have no idea what it sent to you. It may be excellent. It may be a disaster. So thinking through some of those things will go a long way, right? In each process, how are you bringing human in? How are you bringing that validation loop in? I think it's extremely important. That's really good. Yeah, checks and balances is is exactly the thing I'm thinking about. But oh, this is exciting. Ashu, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your story, your wisdom with us. Uh, I'm excited to watch Eightfold continue to grow and serve the world. And uh, I'm glad there's founders like you out there. So I appreciate you. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Drew. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.